Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. May God bless the reading of his word. We have the privilege today of hearing from one of our own, Eric Ding, a longtime friend and someone that our church has uh, supported many years ago. Uh, he generally needs no introduction, and most of you have heard his sharing from last week. So at this time, I'd like to call Eric to the pulpit. I always think it's remarkable how you clap for the guest speakers, but not for your everyday speaker. If you were here last week and uh, have followed along in this week's scripture reading, you'll notice something. Um, Circumcision appears to be a really big deal. I assume for most of us today it's not a big deal. It's not something you talk about. It's not something you bring up during lunchtime. So what's the big deal about circumcision? Why, in Galatians 5, does Paul spend so much energy... Does he mention it over and over and over again? See, if, if, you, if you just listened, even if you understood nothing else about Galatians 5, you'd hear it and, and, and you'd say, you know, this guy's getting really worked up about this circumcision thing. In fact, if you read all of the book of Galatians up till now, you wouldn't have thought circumcision was that big a deal. But this week, in this chapter, it's a really big deal. So today, we're going to talk about circumcision. In the first four chapters of Galatians, Paul has actually only mentioned circumcision twice. And most of these are indirect references. They're talking about the circumcision party. Talking about something else going on somewhere else. But in Galatians 5, if you were listening last week when Patek preached, and, and this week, Paul is actually zeroing in on the target of his letter. See, the whole letter is crafted as a warning to the Galatian church. And the focus of the controversy in the Galatian church is circumcision. See, the Galatians were being persuaded by some, by some teachers, by some influential brothers, that in order to be truly Christian, you had to get circumcised as well. And Paul's response is simple. Don't do it. Just don't do it. We need to figure out why Paul is make, writing a whole letter about this issue. Why is he making such a big deal about it? Before we can figure that out, though, I think it would serve at least a few of us here to answer at least one other question. And it's a simple one. What is circumcision? No slides. <laughs> at its most basic level, circumcision is a surgical procedure. It's also a religious rite. That is to say... Um, virtually all Jews, many Muslims, and a number of tribal people groups in Africa and Australia 
regularly practice circumcision. For example, if uh, you were a boy born to a Jewish family, then on the eighth day of your life, your family would participate in a religious ceremony called the bris. And at that ceremony, there would be a rabbi and there would be others present because all boys are born with a hood of skin um, at the tip of their penis. And it's called the foreskin. And in circumcision, the foreskin is cut off. That's all. So if it's just a piece of skin, you get your giggles out. If it's just a piece of skin, what's the big deal? See, because it's a really big deal to these teachers that the Galatian church considers circumcision. And it's a really big deal to Paul that they don't. So, well, it's safe to assume that Paul's opponents weren't your everyday Christian. Or maybe they were. Paul's opponents were devout Jews before they ever heard of Jesus. And when they came into the church, when they came to believe in Jesus, they didn't stop being Jews. They considered themselves Christians, but they were also still Jewish. They were still Jews. And so these teachers, just like Paul, would have thought about Christianity very differently than most of us in this room usually do. They wouldn't have thought about Christianity as a religious alternative to Judaism, you know, from the menu of different world religions. Christianity was the fulfillment of Judaism. For the people who'd come to believe in Jesus first, Jesus wasn't a new alternative. He was the fullest expression of God finally making good on his promises to Israel. Promises that he'd been making and that faithful Jews had been waiting on for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, if you came to believe in Jesus, well, in a way, being a Christian was just kind of a, it's a newfangled way of saying you're becoming a Jew. Or you're affirming and holding fast to what the Jews had waited for for so many generations. God and his gospel was that God had finally sent a savior, a king, a deliverer for his people. It had finally happened, and Jesus was the one. That was the gospel. So if Jesus and the gospel are a fulfillment of Jewish faith, these teachers were basically saying becoming a Christian is becoming one of God's people, just like the Jews always have been. But what does becoming one of God's people, one of God's children, really require? Well, their answer actually was pretty reasonable. Nothing had changed. Becoming one of God's children requires what it always had. So, what's required to be one of God's people? Well, they would have come to the Galatians church probably and they said, flip back in the Old Testament to the first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. And in chapter 17, they would have read to the Galatian Christians, most of whom were not Jewish in background, they would have said, look, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. 
including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, your own children. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If Jesus had fulfilled all the promises of God, all the hopes of Israel, then it made sense, it made sense to these teachers at least to insist that becoming a follower of Jesus should still require of these Gentiles, these non-Jewish Christians, what becoming one of God's people had always required. Get circumcised. Plain as day. Clear as day. Bright as day. It was a non-negotiable for God's people. Always had been. So it always should be. And that's why it was a big deal to these teachers that Paul was opposing. But circumcision was a big deal to Paul too. And it was a big deal for exactly the opposite reason. See, all the way from the first words of Galatians till now, Paul has been arguing with the Galatians that Jesus and the gospel didn't just fulfill God's promises. It wasn't just God making good on what he'd been saying he would do for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. Jesus actually so dramatically fulfilled the promises that it was like he'd been living in the dark and someone finally turned on the light. He so dramatically fulfilled the promises that the old rules no longer applied in the same way because all along they should now realize the main purpose of the rules wasn't the rules themselves. The rules were meant to point, point forward, point to our need for the Messiah that God was promising. So when the Messiah finally came, well, everything changed. You can almost hear Paul saying when Jesus came and died for our sins, God had finally provided the Savior and the Savior is enough. We've been away for a few years and uh, in Asia and one of the things we don't get, which we started getting in the mail, is uh, circulars. The things most of you guys just throw straight in the recycling. Um, I find it a fascinating thing all over again. So when we get these circulars in the mail, you know they're the advertisements for, uh, you get the coupons and, and the supermarket stuff. I think it's so curious how, what things people buy. I didn't think it was interesting before, but now it's really fascinating. So I pull out the circular for Market Basket or Stop and Shop, and uh, you know, you, you flip through and you're like, wow, that's a lot of processed food. But, you know, eventually you get down to, well, we need to shop for groceries, and so I'm going to see what's on sale. And, oh, you know, so maybe you sit down, if you're the person who plans, the planning type, maybe you just grab it on the way out to the store and, you know, uh, you know, get some steak tips or, oh, there's some vegetables on sale and Cheetos, maybe two bags of Cheetos. And, and so you get ready and you got your shopping list and you know these things are on sale. You get a good deal on them and you go to the store. Um, now imagine if you did that. Imagine you went to the store, you got your good deal, you know, and then you brought it home, you put it in the fridge, threw it in the cabinet, and then meal time came and you, you cooked yourself a great meal. And then after you were finished, you were almost finished, you grabbed those circulars and you pulled them out again. And you took your scissors and you started cutting out the pictures of the food. 
And you ate those too. Well, it's a little bit like that. The circulars were meant to point you to the food, not to be the food. They were meant to set you up to expect what you were going to buy, not to go with what you bought. Circumcision and the law, Paul says, were meant to point us to Jesus, to point to our need for the gospel, not to be the gospel themselves, not to be the fulfillment of those promises. But if these Galatian followers of Jesus were were to get circumcised, he's saying, they would be saying, trusting in Christ, trusting that Jesus died on the cross in our place to save us from our sin, isn't enough. But if we get circumcised, well, now that will really seal the deal with God. Paul's response is that if you get circumcised, it's not like some kind of insurance policy. Not only do you get Jesus, you get circumcision too, and then you're, you're good to go. Paul says that if you get circumcised, you might as well throw out the gospel altogether. If you embrace circumcision, you're actually basically saying, Jesus isn't enough. You see that? Paul says Jesus is enough. He's the Savior, but if you get circumcised, Jesus... Your, your, your circumcision is saying Jesus actually isn't, wasn't enough. And so if he's not enough, Paul's saying, then it's actually all on your shoulders again. Just like it was before you believed in Jesus. Just like it was before you professed to follow Christ. Because if you say he's not enough, then how much more is enough? It's back on your shoulders again. So in a nutshell, Paul says to the Galatians, It's either all on Christ, or it's all on you. Either you cling to Christ alone, by faith, or you get circumcised. You add a little bit to the gospel. But by adding, you're rejecting the gospel altogether. By saying that Jesus isn't really enough. That you need to do that one more thing to really be one of God's children. Just one thing. Either you trust in Christ and it's all on Him, or you get circumcised and it's all on you. And so Paul is is pleading and he's shaming. You can hear him practically yelling at the Galatians, don't get circumcised. Now, Why does a first century fight about circumcision and the gospel still matter to us today? We already said it. It's not like you've got somebody banging down your new believer Sunday school saying, now that you guys have become followers of Jesus, please proceed to the next room where you'll be prepped for surgery. Well, Galatians 5 matters still because at the end of the day, Paul's words to the Galatians weren't just about circumcision. It's about whether trusting in Jesus and his death on the cross is enough. Or whether we need to add something to it to really be one of God's people, to really be his child. The root issue for the Galatians, according to Paul, wasn't about whether believers should get circumcised, although that was the main imperative, the main command, don't do it. The root issue was about to whom or to what we turn when we realize we've got a sin problem. 
Is it all on Christ? Or is it all on you? And you can see that point come out in verse 11. In Galatians 5.11, he says, Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Now, maybe some of these teachers were saying that Paul agreed with them. You know, Paul's not here right now, but if he were here, he, he would say what we're saying. It's just a logical progression of what, we, what he's teaching, right? But Paul says, no way. He rejects the idea completely. He says that if he were to side with these false teachers, in fact, the offense of the cross would be removed. And that phrase, the offense of the cross, is a key to seeing that for us, as much as for the Galatians, we have to choose. It's either all on Christ or it's all on us. See, by the offense of the cross, Paul means that the gospel message, this good news of Jesus Christ, condemns us before it saves us. It condemns us. It condemns you and me before it saves us. The gospel shows us our wickedness, our helplessness before God. It says you are a rebel before the king. You're guilty of sin, you're under judgment, and you're hopeless. You can't save yourself. It says there's no other way to be saved, in fact, than through faith in the one who died in your place. No other way. Try all you want. Work as hard as you want. And it's not enough. You're dead in sin. The Apostle Paul uses similar language, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 22, Paul says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. It's not exactly flattering the Corinthians. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, the nothings, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, a righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Paul's not speaking in the abstract in 1 Corinthians. He's saying, you're the weak, you're the lowly, you're the despised, but God chose you. He didn't choose you because you were strong, not because you were smart, not because you were capable, not because you were prestigious. If you are, that's just a coincidence. Don't let it puff you up. The offense of the cross... The foolishness of the cross means that if the Galatians choose circumcision, they're choosing to reject the message of the gospel that we're utterly lost. 
but that God has provided an all-sufficient Savior. If they embrace circumcision, they're rejecting the premise that we're helpless, that we can do nothing to save ourselves. But God has provided the answer, and he's enough. To restate what Paul's saying here, because of the cross, we can be confident when we place all our faith all our trust entirely on Christ rather than ourselves. But if we start adding anything else to the equation, we're actually relying on ourselves, not on Christ. And if we do, God will hold us to it. If you decide you're going to rely on yourself, God will hold you to your bargain. And then it's all on us. Either I rely entirely on the cross of Christ or I'm really relying entirely on myself. What God is saying to us today through Galatians 5 is that the gospel and self-reliance are totally incompatible. You can't truly rely on Christ for your salvation and rely on yourself too. But that leaves us with a serious problem, I think, because um, I think most of us rely on ourselves all the time. My suspicion is that our larger culture, and that for most of us, our family backgrounds, the subculture that we're a part of, encourage us to celebrate, to nurture self-reliance. Even while the gospel says, reject self-reliance. Depend on Jesus instead. I actually don't think I need to say much to make a case for that. When's the last time you heard a parent say to their kid, or if you guys are still living under your parents' roof, when's the last time your parents ever said to you, you know, it's good to be needy. Embrace your helplessness. Never learn how to do it yourself because you can always just depend on others. Go to the library, don't know how to look up a book, no problem. Always ask the librarian. That car catalog... Is for the chumps who do it themselves. When's the last time you saw a sports star, or even if you're an athlete yourself, you got involved and they said, bring it back up, back up. We're not looking in this tryout for the people who can really click and make it work by themselves. Just because you can shoot 300 free throws in a row doesn't make you worthy of this team. We're looking for the people who dribble and the ball always bounces off their foot. You know, you always need your teammates to back you up, to pull the weight for you. Those are the guys we're looking for on this team. Pride, self-reliance, being capable, are second nature to most of us. They don't need to be nurtured. They're just always there. Always there. I was reading an update from Chris Cheng, uh, who's about to come back from a month and some in in, uh, Japan. Something he wrote uh, really caught my eye. He said, One of the things I've been especially convicted of recently is how much I intuitively desire to be self-sufficient. For example, one night during our prayer journey, we stayed at a traditional Japanese inn. We were given traditional Japanese clothing to wear in the in-house hot spring and meals. So, of course, I googled the traditions involved with staying at this kind of inn, including how to put on the, you know, 
traditional Japanese clothing. With Google's help, I felt confident that I wouldn't completely embarrass myself. It was only later that I realized how much my pride drove me towards self-reliance. I Googled because I wanted to figure out what to do on my own and avoid the weakness of asking someone for help and the shame of looking stupid. Yet in my desire to be self-reliant, I lost the opportunity to build relationship and trust with those whom I might ask for help, whether teammates or strangers. I forget that God's power often is most clearly shown through our weakness. Now, Chris's story resonates with me because I discovered, too, that for myself, self-reliance runs in my veins. I've discovered that you can't separate between self-reliance in certain spiritual things and self-reliance in every other domain of life. If we have the habit of self-reliance in one domain, we're almost sure to have the same habit in every other area of our lives. So even though Paul's focus on Galatians is on relying on Jesus alone for salvation, I hope you hear me when I say depending completely not depending completely on Christ is not a Sunday thing. It's not a when I'm at church thing. It's not when I'm doing Christian stuff thing. It's an all of life thing. So the only way for us to rely entirely on Jesus in spiritual things, so to speak, is to rely on Jesus in all of life. And the only way to do that is to reject self-reliance in all of life. In every domain of life, I need to nurture a desperate dependence on God in His mercy to be and do what I ought to be and do. For me, that lesson came really clear. It came, my life kind of came to a head last spring while we were still in Asia. Uh, we experienced a number of stresses in our lives over the last two, three years. It's been the hardest, probably the hardest season of our ministry life uh, of the last ten that we spent overseas. So, as all that was going on outside of our home, I discovered that that was affecting also what was going on inside our home. As a dad, when my kids weren't cleaning up as quickly as I wanted, it was up to me to set them straight. In our education work, um, I was in the midst of a major team conflict. Everything I did to fix it, to try to straighten it out, only tangled things up further. We'd added a new baby to our family, uh, we were facing ambiguity and setbacks in our work. Our kids had struggles in local school. And I can honestly say that all I was doing was clenching my fists, gritting my teeth, occasionally throwing up a desperate prayer to God for help, and just relying on myself. Whether it was the kids not obeying or conflict with my teammate or any of a dozen other stresses in our life, it usually didn't occur to me to stop and pray and trust God to be more interested in our joy and unity and peace than I was. Whatever the problem, I thought, I have to find a way to work it out myself. I'd forgotten that when God invited us to follow Jesus, like he told me over and over again, it's all on him. 
That's what I started to realize when I had a chance to leave the country. I had to take care of a, some paperwork. And so I, I left my family for a few days to go take care of that. And while I was out of the country, I got to talk to a couple friends about how badly things were going both outside of me and inside of me. That helped. It started making things click. It started seeing what was going on in my heart. And so with my team's permission, including my wife's permission, after I got back home, I took off a few more weeks for some more reflection time. Take a rest, take a break. During that time, I realized, admitted really, how little, how irregularly I'd prayed for the last year of my life, maybe the last five years. I saw how much I'd grown used to relying on myself to solve my problems, or at least try, not on God, not on his mercy. But just like relying on myself couldn't make me right with God, it wasn't helping me love my family. It wasn't solving all the problems that were piling up. That month was a turning point for me. In those weeks, I started learning again what it feels like to depend desperately on God, not just, not just for a moment. I started developing some routines to interrupt myself throughout the day for prayer and reflection. But it wasn't like I was trying to pull myself up again by the spiritual bootstraps. Instead, I just had one goal in, in, in setting those times apart and in interrupting myself. I wanted to keep reminding myself that I only can thrive when I am helplessly dependent on God and his mercy. I started asking God throughout the day, 11 o'clock, 3 o'clock. I started asking him to teach my heart to depend on his mercy and strength in my life instead of on myself. There were other changes that I made in that time, but that reminder, that shift in thinking was kind of the make or break um, to force me to start walking differently in life. I started to find my way again when I started to rely on him again. And it didn't get us out of all the stresses, all the conflicts, all the hardships, but it taught me again what it looks like to thrive through depending on God, through really relying on Him. Now, the message of Galatians 5 is not just that we need to reject self-reliance, but that we need to cling to the cross of Christ. For most of the book of Galatians, Paul's message is mostly negative. It's a warning. Because the stakes of the choice that the Galatian believers are being tempted to make are unthinkable. So that's why, in a verse that actually embarrasses quite a few Christians, quite a few scholars, Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 12, Well, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You know what he's saying, right? He's saying, I wish they would take the knife and not just stop at the foreskin. How could he use such strong words? I mean, that's rude, right? If I got up here and said something like that off the cuff, I think they'd cut off the mic. Just the mic, please. Paul's words are strong because the stakes 
are enormous. Paul's willing to use even offensive words because the stakes are life and death. He needs their attention. He needs them to see this isn't just another way of thinking about the gospel. This is false. And it's leading you on a road toward death. If the Galatian church embraces circumcision, they'd be giving up Jesus. They'd be trading in the hope and the life that they'd found in Christ for the hollow promises of a distorted gospel. A gospel that Paul's already said is no gospel at all. So as we pull back from our focus on these few verses in Galatians 5, we find that God's word isn't simply a warning. It's not just don't get circumcised. It's not just reject self-reliance. It's an invitation that in Christ, it's a reminder that through faith in Christ, God has given us all that we need. So put all your faith in Him. Jesus is enough. Just listen for a moment. Listen to these verses from other parts of the book of Galatians. You need to close your eyes to concentrate. Just listen as Paul says in the letters written in the, middle, in the midst of the Galatian church, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Or in chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In chapter 3, he says, In Christ Jesus, you you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And then later in chapter 6, he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Nailed to the cross. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Because Jesus is enough, Paul can tell the Galatians, don't get cut. Reject circumcision. Reject self-reliance. He can say that circumcision at the end of the day doesn't even matter. What matters is faith in Christ and all that we have through him. Because Jesus is enough, we can give up the self-reliance that, that pulses through our veins and cling to Christ instead. Cling to Him. Rely on Him. We can rely on His death and His resurrection, on His mercy, His power, His faithfulness. For our salvation, yes. But also for all of life. Because it's either all on Christ it's all on us. Father, today we're again faced with the reality that we in our human nature are more likely to count on ourselves to seal the deal with you or just to get through every day as hard as it can be than we are to remember all of your promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus all the promises you still hold out for us in Jesus, 
that when we trust in you and rely on you, we will find it's enough. Even though we know in our heads, many of us, that it's either all on Christ or all on me, we still sometimes, for some strange reason, make it about me. So I ask your mercy in my life, in the lives of my brothers and sisters here, even in the lives of those here who have not come to know you as their Savior and King, that you would help us to turn to you, to throw aside self-reliance, to rely more and more desperately and constantly on Jesus in all of life. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.